Blog Talk Radio. No matter where you're born, you are African. 
And we want to welcome you to Africa on the Moon on the 28th day of March 2021. Welcome to today's program. Our theme is People Are Talking. That's right. People Are Talking. And we're going to talk about some of the things that people are talking about. And we're going to encourage you to dial in with us and participate by calling in at 323 679-0841. Hit one. We will acknowledge your last four numbers, and we'd like to hear your thoughts on issues or concerns that are impacting our people, community, and the world. Like always, listen to Africa on the move. We speak truth to power, and we're going to provide you with information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation and to help liberate your people and to help liberate humanity from all of the various forms of oppression. Information must be understood that it is a tool and must be used only for one purpose, one purpose only, and to help liberate your people and humanity. So on that note, we're going to get started with our party, and the way we're going to do that is to first and foremost introduce you to our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We first will start out with Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome Brother Haki to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamafi Mishoki, and of course you know I think it's institution building. But Brother Africa, I got to tell you, I was listening to the news uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we had this discussion around cultural issues. And, of course, in the context of these cultural issues, essentially what they were talking about were cultural wars. And, it's course, of course, it's coded speech. And so they're not going to tell you what they really mean when they, when they talk about uh, cultural wars. So I thought I'd write a little bit in terms of, you know, precisely what it means when they talk about cultural wars. So whenever they evoke that term, Culture wars, you're precisely their motivation in terms of what they're doing and why they're doing it. But anyway, check this out. Now, culture wars is a term used by politicians, specifically right-wing politicians, to describe what they consider malcontents in American society. Such politicians see the progressive agenda as an affront to America's history and prestige. Marriage and progressive agenda are never critiqued. Instead, these cultural warriors seek to demonize those whose values directly implicate American platitudes that prevent the U.S. from achieving real democracy on an egalitarian scale. Cultural wars in the U.S. have a long and historic history. Originating in 13 colonies, claims of land ownership, despite the indigenous uh, Indians' presence, set a precedent ensuring cultural wars would never be based on truth, but a facsimile of stories woven together to justify exploitation both physically and monetarily. In the 20s, cultural wars in the U.S. reached a new plateau. Innovations in industrial production and mass immigrant migration combined to increase wealth of robber barons or the business class. But with an abundance of labor, even a quest for wages, the threat of organized labor had to be addressed. Political oppression was instrumental in destroying unions in the 20s, but a long-term strategy was needed to devalue unions in a way unions would, not, would come to be despised. Cultural wars were crucial in not only devaluing unions, weakening if not destroying unions, but more importantly, pitting people against each other, thereby under, undermining worker unity that gave legitimacy to unions. 
Access to radio played a big part in disseminating what constitutes a real American. Topics like immigration, race, alcohol, evolution, gender politics were assigned levels of respectability. Real Americans, educated by radio, felt empowered to champion the call of real Americanism. Never appreciating real Americanism had effectively limited their civil rights and enlisted them into the army of the oppression. Now, culture wars would not only be fought in the U.S. territory alone, but initiated throughout the Western world. Under the tutelage of Alan Dulles, the first CIA director, the business of cultural war internationally was in vogue. In strong support of Nazis in Germany, Dulles was enamored with Nazi propaganda power prowess and its principles that could be incorporated in cultural wars for the purpose of ensuring U.S. interests are protected in Western capitals. Dulles understood U.S. corporate interests could not be sustained given its anti-democratic, fascistic character and a disenchantment that it would facilitate in Western capitals. Clearly, cultural wars would be instrumental in fomenting division in Western states, propping up Western right-wing politicians, and preserving leadership that is malleable, agreeable to U.S. interests as primary. In the context of the temporary times, <clears throat> culture wars for financial elites is essential, particularly in the U.S. In June of 2020, the World Economic Forum, the WEF, hosted its annual meeting of the, on the state of the world's economy. The organization, which has only 60 states represented, even though there are 195 states in the world, is less than democratic. It came up with two findings of particular interest for the U.S., the first was the global currency reset, which states the U.S. will lose its position as a reserve currency because the U.S. is over-leveraged. In other words, they're borrowing too much money, and it's less competitive um, when it comes to purchasing power compared to China or Russia. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's simply too, too uh, expensive to invest in. In layman's terms, when Federal Reserve continues to purchase bonds from the Department of Treasury to create money, all their money lessens the value of the dollar. Because the dollar value is declining, investors both in the U.S., and internationally refused to invest in the U.S. economy. Limited investment in U.S. stocks and bonds stops the U.S. of needed revenues. The only, reven- the only avenue to government revenues is to increase interest on government bonds, which drives up U.S. debt, making the U.S. a poor nation. Keeping in mind, bonds have a maturity date at which upon ending, the government must pay. Now, secondly, the, the second finding is the U.S. debt is $28 trillion. Now, according to some economists, it's actually $32 trillion. But the gross domestic product is only $20 trillion. In other words, the debt-to-GDP ratio or difference between what the U.S. sells and imports what the U.S. buys are imbalanced. Simply stated, the U.S. ability to, to repay its debts is compromised. In fact, impossible to repay. When a country's debt-to-GDP ratio reaches 77%, According to the World Bank, the country is in danger of default. Current debt-to-GDP ratio in the U.S. is 140%, according to the Federal Reserve statistics. U.S. debt is larger than the economies of Japan, Germany, and India combined. Indeed, much of the U.S. economic problems are self-inflicted, <clears throat> starting with Nixon's ending of the gold standard, making it possible to finance endless wars with fiat currency, followed by deindustrial policy that encouraged shutting down factories in the U.S and shipping them abroad. This project was financed to ensure production of cheap goods uh, to U.S. corporations, so U.S. corporations could sell it to the public at great profits. While the U.S. investor class could invest in aforementioned earnings, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, 
Now, the thing is that when we talk about the, the monies that pumped into the system, <clears throat> what it does is it increases the value of asset prices. Now, successive reserve uh, chairmen, starting with Alan Greenspan, have implemented policy to artificially keep stock prices high. Utilizing put options, wealthy investors can avoid rules of the marketplace or, or the possibility of losing money by selling stock back to the seller at agreed-upon price at the time of the sale while, while simultaneously purchasing stock. How could they lose? The bottom line is cultural Excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm messed up here. Okay, the misstep was followed by a U.S. attempt to undermine the supply chain under the guise of weakening China, only to increase economic malaise sweeping throughout the U.S. economy. This counterproductive policy was compounded by sanctions on Russia, the EU, and China, contributing to the much stronger economic decline in the U.S. In fact, this policy has compounded Russia to disinvest in the dollar and reject the SWIFT system of money management internationally. This means the U.S. debt would not be subsidized or supported by Russia any longer. China may soon join forces. Clearly, uh, the capitalists were huge beneficiaries of the policy of deindustrialization, but the, the masses of American people are losers in a bigger way. Escalating unemployment, increasing homelessness, non-funding for school, and incarceration rate fueled by private prison expansion spells hardship for most people in the U.S. The result to American families did not end with this slap, I mean punch in the face, but body blows that resonate sharply. The same capitalist formulated system which which where losing could be avoided and wealth assured. In the era of financialization and monetization, money is pumped into the system to ensure asset prices rise continuously. Successive Federal Reserve chair, chairpersons, are starting with Alan Greenspan, have implemented policy to artificially keep stock, price, stock prices high. Utilizing put options, Russian investors could avoid rules of the marketplace, or in other words, avoid possibly losing money by selling, selling stock back to the seller at the agreed-upon price at the time of the sale while purchasing stock simultaneously. And keep in mind the same token the same the same token, you have a system you have a system which artificially keep interest rates low to ensure there's plenty of money out there to ensure for investments, to ensure that this money reaches the pocket of the very wealthy. So in this situation it's still impossible for them to lose. Now the bottom line is culture wars is a strategy the wealthy can can ill afford not to use. So next time media complains that Mr. Potato Head has been castrated by the woke mob or removing some federal statutes from public spaces to anti-American, or Dr. Seuss is a literary giant, or media is hostile to conservatives, even though they own the media, understand utilizing cultural is the only way for wealthy to divide people while simultaneously receiving a population which in turn provides cover for financial needs to steal massive wealth, ultimately hastening Americans' demise. Unfortunately, it would be poor people, specifically Africans, who would be blamed for U.S. financial decline. Culture wars demands fails vilification. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Okay, we thank you, Brother Haki. We next would like to introduce our political panelists and analysts for today. We're going to go to our Brother Moses. We're going to bring him in, and we'd like to welcome him as well to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Moses. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism in a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts, Brother Africa, 
I'm pro-choice, and I vote. And I want to thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show. All right. Thank you, Brother Moses. What we're going to do right now, you're going to listen to Africa on the Moon. Uh, we're going to take a short station break, and when we come back, we want you to join us as we talk about what's going on in your world and the community. You listen to Africa on the Moon. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort, 
for sustained humanity. Human beings. Human love. On a spiritual tip. So vast. So great. The African embrace. Live beyond love beyond your skin to where you belong.
on and on. On and on. And on and on. We welcome you back to Africa on the Move. We now get started on our first segment, which is what's going on in your world and the community. If you are listening to this program, you'd like to share with our listening audience and the rest of the world on what's going on in your world and the community, feel free to call in at 323-679-0841 and hit 1. When you hit 1, we will acknowledge your last four numbers. So right now, we're going to bring in our political panelists and analysts for today. We can start with Brother Haki. We can ask Brother Haki. Brother Haki, on the 28th of March, 2020, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, well, Brother Africa, I tell you, I was um, I was thinking about the song by uh, Sonny Okasun called African Soldier. So, you know, recently uh, the, the brother, President of Tanzania, uh, uh, Brother Magafule, uh, he, he passed. And uh, I just want to do a, a proper um, tribute to, to, his, to his life, you know, because uh, he was so instrumental in terms of resisting, you know, Western imperialism. And, uh, in fact, he, 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 hopefully he has set a precedent for other African leaders to follow uh, because if they don't follow his lead in Africa, of course, we know it's going to be in serious trouble. But anyway, then check us out, Brother Africa. Now, search for a liberator had long evaded Africa. African leaders content on embracing their own oppression had long been a constant until the leadership of John Magafule emerged. Magafule, uh, like Professor Lumumba, spoke truth to Western power, raising the ire of Western institutions committed to the continued subjugation of Africa. President Magafule and, and the imperialists implemented economic policy that yielded dividends for the Tanzanian economy. As a result of Magafule's economic policy, Tanzania is considered a middle-income country, according to the World Bank. This economic achievement was achieved five years prior to World Bank calculations, and it is this economic improvement over a relatively short time in office that has riled Western capitals. Content to label Magafule an authoritarian, one who clamps down on dissent or censors media, this age-old strategy seeks to demonize foreign leaders and empower opposition movements or individuals in a targeted country, willing to carry out Western agenda and showing the continued exploitation of the people and its resources. By highlighting Megafoulet's alleged attacks on Tanzanian institutions, this belies the real motive of Western capital, which is to maintain dominance on Tanzanian resources. Interestingly, uh, the institutions in question are not Western institutions, but Tanzanian institutions. Such institutions serve the interests of Tanzania, not outside forces. When Western propaganda advocate institutions abroad are not operating correctly, they imply Tanzanian institutions should operate in a manner that's beneficial to Western economic interests. Western discussion around freedom of press or freedom of assembly or human rights abuses are only relevant to the extent these individuals running these institutions in the targeted states can be manipulated to divide their own populations, creating fertile ground for Western exploitation of Tanzanian resources. Instead of focusing on tangible economic resources, the focus is on the intangible in an attempt to maximize the most division possible in Tanzania or, or any targeted country. As far as intangibles, President Magafule is was considered by Western press an authoritarian. Despite numerous examples of legitimate authoritarian leaders in Africa, Uganda, Rwanda, Guinea, Cote d'Ivoire, to name a few, 
None have been sanctioned by the U.S. State Department. So why sanction Tanzania? One of the biggest reasons was the result of Megafoulet's exposing vaccine colonialism. By exposing the dubious nature of the World Health Organization, the WHO, testing scheme for COVID-19, he denied a multi-billion dollar scheme to huge profits. Megafoulet, a former chemistry professor, tested the accuracy of COVID-19 testing by secretly providing samples of fruit, goats, sheep, and cow oil to be analyzed by PCR tests for COVID-19. The samples came back positive for COVID-19. Clearly, the World Health Organization tests were unreliable. These findings in part convinced Makafule to question the science of COVID-19. Compelled to play down COVID-19 threat, not only did he advocate traditional medicines, but refused to close the borders for business. It, is, it appears his denialism in relative terms was successful. Of the 500 uh, COVID-19 cases in Tanzania, 183 uh, recovered with 21 deaths, a far cry from the 500,000 in the United States. His refusal to close the country down apparently contributed to a growing economy. Consequently, Tanzania built a modern electrical railway system, vastly improved the country's infrastructure while assisting national businesses. These achievements were only possible because of institutional changes confronting corruption, which is an endemic among many African political leaders. Magafule confronted farm businesses to pay back taxes owed Tanzania. Fairfast in his demand, any foreign corporate entity unwilling to honor its financial obligations were free to leave Tanzania. He banned officials from taking foreign trips, thus eliminating the temptation of graft. He cut his salary along with his staff. Public service would no longer be a cash cow. The people business would, be, would take precedent. He even rejected a $10 billion loan from China because the terms were to indebt Tanzania and negate its potential for growth. Potential for recolonization was too great to which John Magafuli responded, only a madman would accept these terms. With Magafuli's untimely death comes opportunity in the Western states, specifically the U.S., to impose economic terms on Tanzania that will ensure its underdevelopment. Let us hope uh, the spirit of liberation will manifest itself in the new president of Tanzania, Samia Hassan. Hassan. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. We're now going to go to Brother Moses. We're going to ask him what's going on in his world, his community. And if you are listening to Africa on the Move, we would like to send this invitation to you as well. Call in at 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. We want, you to, we want to know what's going on in your world and the community. We now we're bringing Brother Moses. Brother Moses? What's going on in your world and the community? Can you hear me, Brother Moses? While we wait for Brother Moses to come on, Brother Haki, I have a quick question for you in terms of you alluded earlier um, in one of your um, your recent dissertation on... Yes, we got Brother Moses. Yes, Brother Moses. What's going on in your world? Yes. You're talking I'm about? on mute again. I'm on mute and stuff. But um yeah, I I um I um I understand that, you know, without revolutionary theory there can be no revolutionary movement and, and so we have to to uh, sum up the the experiences of the working class and its general aspect as a guide to action and that's very interesting. Brother Haki um, 
uh, pointed out that um, the Tanz- Tanzania, I think he was talking about uh, how they dealt with this COVID thing, and I, I'm very interested in hearing more because you know all the facts, all the facts uh, make a difference, and uh, uh, so I, I definitely because uh, this COVID thing is is, is is the number one issue on the planet at this point, and if there is if there's some kind of uh, um, information that is that is that is critical to uh, my understanding. And, uh, and it sounds like this information is critical to my understanding, so I would like to hear more about it. Um, meanwhile, uh, I don't know, uh, there's been the Answer Coalition. Yeah, the Answer Coalition uh, had a demonstration yesterday uh, with a number of other groups, I think, not just the Answer Coalition, but uh, against, call it what it is, racism and uh, uh and the attacks on the Asian community and stuff, and they had speakers and and uh, an event. Also today, um, the DC Coalition, Metro Coalition, uh, in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution, uh, had a, a more of a uh, um, drive drive by more or less uh, drive drive in um, demonstration uh, uh, for Cuba and uh, to stop the um, embargo and the, the war on Cuba, the Cold War on Cuba. Those are the two big things this week, and I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And like we said, if you have anything that you'd like to share with our listening audience on the segment, what's going on in our world, please dial in at 323-679-0841. We have a caller who would like to share with us what's going on in their world and the community, and we can bring this caller in, who has the last four numbers. Call us 7236-7236. What's going on in your world in the community? Yes, caller. Can Mike you yours. hear me? Yes, we can. Hello. Good evening. Oh, great. I'm, I'm having a mute problem, too. I, I just want to thank you all for doing the show. And uh, as Brother Rod, Robert said, the biggest thing is uh, the pandemic. And, of course, we're concerned about uh, having uh, vaccines for our brothers and sisters on the continent and uh, in places like Brazil, where the president had acted as if the the virus wasn't real. He followed the uh, Trump line with that. And uh, so that's what I'm really concerned with, uh, if the brother would speak on what's happening in Tanzania with the virus. We understand that South Africa is having a serious problem as well as uh, um, Ethiopia, Morocco, Egypt. And uh, why would they have a greater incident of infections than other uh, countries? If anyone could help uh, educate us, the audience, on that issue, I'd really appreciate it. <clears throat> thank you. And thank you for doing the show. Hello? Hello? What happened? We saw this for the delay. Uh, we are back. We are likely right now make a tr- transition to Brother Haki. Um He was speaking earlier on the impact of how the president 
of Tanzania was dealing with this whole pandemic. And I understand his recent transition, many would say his form of assassination. Um, we'd like to maybe talk a little bit more in terms of what maybe what was really behind his so-called um, assassination, given the fact that he refused to cavil to Western interests and Western policies, particularly around this whole incident of dealing with the virus and the pandemic. So, Brother Haki, are there any other um, sets of information or ideas you may would like to share with the listening audience on your take of the recent transition of the uh, our brother from Tanzania and this issue of um, the pandemic? Yeah, well, let me, let me, yeah, brother, well, brother, let me, brother, let me just address the sister's question. Um, she 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 intimated that uh, perhaps there's more going on with respect to this COVID-19 than than we realize. One of the very interesting thing in terms of this this COVID-19 and the fact that uh, uh, John uh, Magafule uh, refused to play ball. Essentially, what it means is that um, the ability for the Western states to make lots and lots of money was curtailed. In addition to that. One of the things is by John McAfee not closing the border, it was a business as usual. So as a consequence of business as usual, I mean business continuing, it meant that the the uh, the, uh, the Tanzanian economy improved greatly. Now the whole point, the whole geopolitics behind COVID-19, uh, if if you could if you could cause African states to close down, uh, not only would it not uh, generate you know, any revenue, but they're more right in terms of exploitation. One of the things we talk about the, the history of, of viruses, one of the things that are very interesting is that, you know, uh, when, whenever these, these, these viruses prop up, you know, there's a big focus on Africa in terms of the impact on Africa. The question becomes, now, you know, why, is, why do these, one, why do these viruses continue to prop up in Africa? And secondly, why is, it, why is the case always being made that somehow, um, you know, uh, the situation is perilous, but with the rest of the world, this virus is merely just a virus, something that we can, we can overcome? So clearly the geopolitical dimensions in terms of, you know, when we talk about uh, viruses cannot be understated. It's just to also allude to the fact that, you know, when we talk about in terms of the, the, the just how, um, if, how devastating these, these viruses are, it's very, very interesting that those countries that who, who are manifesting uh, huge, huge amounts of COVID-19 infections happen to be states that are doing well in terms of, in ter- who have the potential in terms of actually standing on their own. So when we talk about South, South Africa, uh, clearly, you know, and, and, and clearly South Africa has, the, has the, the infrastructure in terms of being a, a, a power in and of itself. So you got to wonder, say, even though South Africa scientists actively participated with the, U- the Oxford University in the UK, even though they specifically work with them in terms of innovating this so-called vaccine, then no one can, can really can adequately explain why is it that despite, you know, this, 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 this huge infusion of cash, this expertise, that, that COVID-19 is running rampant in, in, the, in, in South Africa, despite the fact that the people are being vaccinated. So clearly there's something askew here. Egypt. Uh, one of the things we got to be very, very clear on in terms of, you know, there's a tremendous amount of uh, movement in Egypt around the question in terms of, you know, of the abandonment of the Palestinian people. There are lots of people in, that, in, in, the, in Egypt who are very, very upset about, the, uh, about uh, Egypt's stand in terms of its relationship with, uh, with the Zionist state of Israel. In fact, they see that their obligation as Muslims to actually fight on behalf of the Palestinians to ensure the return of their homeland. 
so clearly um, the potential exists. And so what the U.S., as a geopolitical matter, one of the things that the U.S. want to do is to make sure that on some level, at least to, to undermine that movement that's taking place in Egypt to ensure that is the issue, the client state, is protected. So, again, COVID-19 plays a very valuable part in terms of creating that division in society uh, by essentially getting people to be afraid of one another based upon new COVID-19. Uh, Ethiopia, what can you say about Ethiopia? It's a very powerful country uh, with, the, with, the, with the addition of the dam. I mean, the potential for Ethiopia is enormous. And right now, unfortunately, you've got this tribal thing going on uh, with, between the, um, the, the main group and the Tigres that's currently going on. But, you know, hopefully that's going to be resolved. But more important, this just in terms of, you know, this COVID-19 in Ethiopia, no one can, no one can deny, you know, the potential that exists in Ethiopia. And so, therefore, you've got this, 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 this wellspring, this upspring, this, this, this growth in terms of COVID-19. And you've got to ask yourself, it's very, this, this virus is very, very, um, very, very particular in terms of who it attacks. Uh, and, it's, and it's very, very timely in terms of where it shows up. So we've been the one that's something a bit more in terms of, you know, this, this, this virus than, than they're telling us. And one of the things, there's a book uh, um, by Judith Miller entitled Germs, and what she talks about in terms of evolution of, of viruses. So, so we understand a lot of these viruses that we perceive that we're told that natural evolution in terms of, uh, in terms of um, you know, responding, you know, coming, up, coming to being organically, we come to realize that a lot of this stuff was actually produced in the, and um, and um, in, in, in laboratories, and so when we talk about um, uh, the cardiologists out of out of South Africa, um, uh, Walter Busson, Busson, and we talk about HIV. So we understand his role he played in terms of the evolution of the creation of in the, in the CIA funding to for soon for the purpose in terms of innovating HIV. And this is not this is not hyperbole. This is something that you can research for yourself if you really want to find out. His name is his name is John uh, Walter Busson, W O U L T E R. B-A-S-O-O-N, Walter Bersoon. He's a cardiologist out of South Africa. Also, Raymond, Raymond Zielinski, uh, a, um, a, a biochemist out of the United States. And when we talk about in terms of the evolution of AIDS, it's very interesting in terms of the kind of research that he performed, performed we know AIDS, AIDS to do in terms of preventing the body from actually healing itself. So clearly, you know, when we talk about uh, the geopolitical dimensions in terms of viruses, we got to understand that Africa is prime real estate. So when we talk about the recolonization of Africa, viruses is going to play a big part in terms of doing that. So if you can create the conditions to keep Africa in uproar, to keep Africa divided, to keep Africa poor in terms of fighting this, this, this epidemic, then the Western nations win because Africa will be rife in terms of, you know, in terms of plunder and, uh, and, and manipulation. So clearly uh, I, I think that so, so – so, so when we think about you know, these, these viruses, then we understand there's more to this that's going on. And the mere fact that uh, in Tanzania that you, we had a relatively small number of cases, and keep in mind, because the borders are open, there's no, there's, there's no real, there's, 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 because the borders were open, there were always a possibility that people from other countries originally came into Tanzania and, and to spread it. There was, there was nothing to say that, uh, you know, that that didn't happen, that didn't transpire. So clearly, but even with that, even with the open borders, the mere fact you're talking about a relatively small number of people who actually uh, caught it, uh, and only, or even a smaller number who actually died, uh, speaks values in terms of maybe that's more to this, this, this COVID-19 than we, than we realize. And, of course, one of the things I've always talked about, and I think people need to understand, is that when we talk about COVID-19 and we talk about the specific technologies they use in terms of implementing this vaccine, and you talk about nanotechnology and the dangers nanotechnology uh, um, presents to humanity, you got to ask yourself, why the hell, as some scientists say, 
would you innovate a, a vaccine with nanotechnology and knowing you never used nanotechnology on human beings before, knowing the potential for risk is too great? Why would you do it anyway? So clearly there is, there's much to be said about COVID-19. So, uh, Brother Africa, I'll close with that and let uh, Brother Moses speak. Brother Moses, you'd like to respond? Share any more thoughts on this virus? Yeah. The mic is yours. Now, I think you know. Yeah, I, think, you I think, know, think it is interesting as Brother Haki is pointing out a, a, a definite contradiction that must be explained. Um, if, if, if the report is correct that uh, there's a low virus death and uh, low virus uh, um, transmission in in the country, then um, it needs to be known and because uh, you know, people this information people. People must consider uh, what's going on. Uh, I don't know what measures. I wonder what measures they're doing to to, to safeguard against the virus. I don't know. I mean, I, I assume they they are using some measures, physical distancing, masks, and and, and uh, washing hands, etc. Um, um, anyway, I, I got more questions than answers. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. I would just like to just add my little two cent worth in terms of this discussion. I think that one got to remember at all time, African people are at war. The West is at war with Africa and African people. The West is at war with humanity. And uh, and war comes into different forms. And this is this is I see this as part of biological warfare against not only Africa, but um, humanity in general. Because the West is determined to believe that they're going to win and continue to dominate the rest of the world. And their history clearly states that they will use any means necessary. And this question is obviously interesting in terms of when originally um, was identified and was spread in different countries and different areas, for some reason or another, you had different uh, strains of virus in different countries, where yet it was released based around the same time. And one would have to ask, how could that be? You know, you had one virus, but yet when you go to different countries, you have different strains of viruses taking place at the same time. So it looked like something that may have been genetically uh, manufactured by human beings. We know in Fort Dix, Maryland, in the Army base, is one of the bases that the world knows that create viruses and create laboratories that can um, have impacts on hundreds, thousands, million people. Now, Africa is really interested in terms of its population. One of the threats that many people see Africa to have as it relates to Europe is that they are concerns of population in terms of longevity. It has been reported that Africa has a population or maybe 60 to 70% of its population is very young, between the age, ages of maybe 18 to 25 or so. And then looking at this demographic, realize it also has economic and political implications in the future. So when you look at all these factors and look at the attitude of the rich and the wealthy, uh, individuals such as Bill, Belinda Gates, and they have a project, they have a plan, where they want to depopulate so many billions of people by a certain time period, one will have to look at this particular question. Is this something 
particularly done at this particular time to meet the goals and desires of the rich and the powerful who want to continue to dominate not only the people label but also the resources. And some of the European think tanks, they have created projects where they want to project Africa to become a land without people. And the important part of this particular concept is to make sure that the people who are in power will have access and control of the resources that comes from the land. And they will have to they will have to not to have to worry about those who live in on that particular land base. So if you look at all these factors and, and begin to connect these dots, you know, it's more than what they are mean us believe. No one really knows what is the makeup of these particular um, um, vaccine medicines and why we have so many different kinds at the same time. So, you know, um, we have a history. I think it's important for us to take heed to our history and um, and use it as a, as a tool to try to understand the present realities that we are dealing with and what the future may look like. So that's, that's my little two cents worth. What I would like to do before we go into that segment of going back down memory lane is that for my panelists and those who are listening who like to weigh in on this, I'd like to know your take. What is your take on what is the issue of this phenomenon of these attacks on the Asian community? What's the motivation? What's the distraction? What's the reason? Because, you know, things do not happen because they just happen. Things are thought about, created, and they are put into effect. So in terms of looking at this distraction, what is this all about? From your perspective, Brother Hackey, give me your take on this issue or this attack that is going on in the so-called Asian community. But you know, Brother Africa, I I think that these attacks... You got get the feedback. I think I think these attacks on the um, on the Asian community is is, is 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 been ongoing. I don't think it's, it's anything new. I think what has happened is that the those musicians of power, particularly those who control the media, have using it now as 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 a wedge as a wedge issue. And so now I'm making by by elevating attacks on Asians, they can say, okay, um, we got a problem in terms of of, of divisions that exist in American society. I don't think they're doing it because they care about Asian people per se. I think they're doing it because of political reasons. Because by elevating attacks on Asian community, you actually encourage more people to commit more attacks on Asian community. So you know, so I, I so I think to 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 a large extent, you know, like I said, because these these, these attacks have been ongoing, this is nothing new. That the here, you know, um, Johnny come lately with the media decides that they're going to highlight you know these cases. Uh, speaks values in terms of political motive in terms of even highlighting these cases. But more importantly, I think, Brother Africa, or just as importantly, I think one of the things that, you know, when you talk about in terms of, you know, um, you know uh, China being on the rise, there certainly does a certain amount of xenophobia that exists in society. And the mere fact is non-white people are, are actually have the number one economy in the world doesn't set well with a lot of white people. And so, therefore, there's a tremendous amount of resentment in terms of these non-white folks who are in a position to actually control their own destination. And so despite U.S. attempt in terms of, uh, terms of policy to impact uh, um, China's uh, growth, uh, I think to a large extent, I think for a lot of people, uh, they see the right in the war. And because they see the right in the war, there's a certain kind of resentment among white folks who say that, well, listen, you know, if, uh, if we can't control, nobody should control. And, uh, and I think this attack on Asian people is, is a testament to 
this notion that uh, you know that we would never you know allow you people these Asian people these Chinese people uh, to 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 run the world. So I think to a large extent I think that's what's going on in terms of attack on, on Asian people. But like I said before, it's not new, brother Africa. It's been going. It's been ongoing. It's been you know they just decided to highlight it now. And so uh, the mere fact they decided to highlight it has nothing to do in terms of the betterment of the of Asian Asian community. It has more to do in terms of you know domestic politics in terms of the best way to foment division and certainly foment hostilities between, uh, between people. So clearly, you know, there's political dimensions in terms of what's going on when we talk about the whole Asian, the whole, the whole Asian, Asian uh, uh, problem in terms of being assaulted on the streets. Okay, let's go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses. I hear you, Brother Hockey. We're working on it the best we can. Uh, Brother Moses, we'd like to get your take. What do you think about uh, what's going on right behind this Phenomenal of this um, so-called attack on the Asian community. Would you make up this, this phenomenal, brother? No, no. Well, like he said, it's been going on for some time. But I think Donald Trump has brought a new, new dimension to it with his kung fu and and uh, China virus and all that. Uh, trying to 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 characterize the virus as if it's China's responsibility and. Uh, and uh that 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 kind of feedback uh is 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 not necessary and is not helpful at all uh we have to take this from a scientific standpoint dialect from historical materialism and uh and and call things for what they are and it is a virus uh and, you know the scientific community understands virus and and it's not a country specific thing it could pop up. It just happened to pop up in China, and not necessarily. Uh, it could have popped up somewhere else. Possibly, we don't know. Uh, uh, and these variants, and you know, um, there's explanations for variants. And uh, you know, I think the scientific community, generally speaking, is on top of of of, of what's going on. Uh, uh, but uh, there is a I remember you talk about culture wars. There's information wars, and that the the person that started the information wars was a Trump person, and he was the first to talk about conspiracy on, on 9/11. And on the very day it happened, he was already talking about how it was an inside job, and uh, so there's information wars, and uh, and. Uh, you have to check and verify the accuracy of information because because we come to the wrong conclusions if we have the wrong information. And so I'm into dialing from historical materialism and the concrete analysis, concrete conditions. And uh, um, they say a true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love for the people and that if he makes a mistake, you can blame it on his mind and not on his heart because his heart is in the right place. And so, you know, we have to... We, I, I uh, still have faith in Dr. Fauci, uh and I'm still learning as I go, and uh, and uh, we shall see. Uh, we shall see. Thank you. Caller, we can go back to our caller seven two three six. We'd like to hear your perspectives. Um, what's going on in the Asian community? What do you think this is all about? 
You know, there is a philosophy where you can rule through chaos. And this part of the strategy where the rich and the powerful has created these scenarios to rule by chaos, to divide different communities, and um, so they can continue to stay in power. But what's your perspective, Carlos? 7236, 7236. Which is respectful. Hello. 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 Yes, Carlos. The mic is yours. Well, I, I, I quite frankly think the pandemic is a a crisis that should unite all of us globally. And what I think right now is I've been thinking about uh, this capitalism and these pharmaceuticals having gotten so much money from the taxpayers in the United States of America to come up with the vaccine. And now, instead of allowing everyone anywhere to reproduce it and not try to lay some claim to uh, intellectual property. After you've already discussed Moderna and these people have been discussing how they have other platforms that they're going to use uh, this new data that they've developed on our tax dollars, we're looking for a vaccine to save all of us to save all African people, to save all red people, to save all yellow people, to save all white people. We want to save each other. It's an act of love. And right now, I think we need to renegotiate with, uh, have Congress renegotiate with these folks that we gave this money to, to research uh, the development of vaccine and make it available to a greater number of pharmaceutical companies so they can produce the vaccine so that we can save everyone. If we're only vaccinating the Western countries or the wealthy countries, none of us are going to be saved. We've got to vaccinate everyone. So that's my my limited limited opinion. And Carla, I think your points are well taken. Unfortunately, you know, the capitalists always look for what they call opportunity costs, and they will take advantage of it. And from their perspective, they don't even see it as a means to try to uh, eradicate the viruses. They see it as a means of them just making more and more money. And unfortunately, that's the way they operate, but the people have to um, organize themselves to ensure that, you know, if we're going to say, the rest of humanity is going to be humanity. The people who make up humanity will have to um, put in their hands and find a way to solve their problems. But anyway, what we're going to do is listen to Africa. And what we're going to do is right now we're going down to the segment that we call Going Down in Memory Lane, Learning from the Past. Uh, we're going to take a presentation that was made uh, earlier by Brother Kwame Ture as he talked about lessons from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. We want to listen to this and see how we can apply to what's going on today based upon what lessons he left us as he spoke about learning lessons from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. So right now, let's go down to the memory lane, and when we come back, we will continue this dialogue. You got to listen to Africa on the move. We thank you for your welcome. We 
have been allotted uh, half an hour and uh, within this half an hour we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60s and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement it can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the early, late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. That's if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous.
certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it is, has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. 
This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly, if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in the society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, 
bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students joined with the masses of the people came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus we must not confuse ourselves, the job of students to clear here, their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's the mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system based on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Though that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> Thus, thus, students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood, and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and as a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. 
Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the power of the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. 
Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Snick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hand with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside of there, with one fighting against the other simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. 
He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'll tell you they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on a college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. (laughs) Of course.
I must learn from the sixties and how they play out or it's having the impact of dealing with the twenty first century. As we continue to live and struggle and try to analyze our present conditions. He left us many lessons that we need to not only learn but to but also to apply to our present day conditions. We'd like to at least to conscientize the listening audience tonight as we remind of some of these lessons. And we'd like for our panelists and we allow we'll also like for you, the listening audience, uh, if you heard this presentation, feel free to call in at 323-679-0841 and share your perspectives based upon what you have just recently heard from Lessons of the Sixty by Brother Kwame Ture. We're going to open up the discussion, start with Brother Haki, as you will listen tentatively to many contradictions of lessons we should have learned from the Sixty Brother Haki. Which one stood out the most as relates to looking at the situation that our people are in today and how can we use it to move forward? So we now will open up the mic to you, Brother Haki, and give us your perspective. Yeah, first, Brother yeah, Africa, let me let me just give some context uh, because it's important, you know, that we have this context to understand, you know, clearly what the Brother Kwame, Kwame uh, Toure was actually saying. Now, one of the things recently, the Freedom House Advocacy Group released a report talking about uh, the score countries based upon level democracy. Now, in America, often we think that this is democracy. We don't understand that when you go look, when you look at the history of America, when you look at the, the Constitution, uh, democracy is not egalitarianistic. In other words, democracy, uh, as we know it, has nothing to do in terms of treating people fairly or, or, or treat, treating people in a manner uh, which is uh, or respectful of their humanity. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, this, this democracy is to benefit the few. Uh, it's a republic. It's not a democracy. So the first thing we have to do is disabuse ourselves of this, this notion that, in fact, we live in a democracy. Because one of the problems, when you think that you live in a democracy, there's a propensity or tendency to think, because you live in a democracy or think you live in a democracy, that uh, if you just vote the right people in, then they can um, curve forth your interests, and then it's going to be all right. Clearly, those politicians are not there to carry out interests. They're there to sustain the system at large. The system at large, as Kwame talked about, is dimensionally opposed to the interests of African people. And we've got to clearly understand that. So when someone says it's a democracy, understand, clearly it's not. It's a republic. There's a big difference between the two. Now, this report that the, um, the, the Freedom House Advocacy Group released, they talked about the, the inequality, specifically of poor African people, and they looked at three areas. Uh, they look at criminal justice. Now, this is important in terms of criminal justice. Criminal justice is important because one of the things recently, you know, in uh, St. Louis, uh, there's a circuit attorney by the name of Kim Gardner who attempted to obtain a new trial for an innocent black man that the state knew was innocent. The state knew he was innocent. The state would have information attesting to his innocence. So the information clearing this black man was withheld by the state to ensure a conviction. Now, the state star witness was paid $4,000 or move the expenses to change his statement, in fact, that the, that the uh, brother was guilty of the crime. Uh, now, now, here's the kicker. The state Supreme Court ruled it is not the duty of the prosecutor to pursue justice. Think about that for a while. The job of the, of the, of the, of the state is to defend, the job of the prosecutor is to defend. Uh, so what can we learn from that? Well, clearly, when we talk about justice being the driving motive of the U.S. criminal justice system, it's not. 
And so clearly, so when we talk about, uh, and by the way, Kim Gardner happened to be an African woman, and so clearly she under, she, she felt compelled, you know, to ensure the release of this, this innocent black man who's serving over, who's been in prison for 25 years for something he didn't do. But the court position is that, you know, your job is not to seek truth. It's not to seek justice. It's to uphold the state. We have to hold, if the state is, if the state dimensions are diametrically opposed to the interests of the African people, then if the Supreme Court of the state tell you your job is to lock them up and uh, keep your mouth shut, then you know what? Uh, it, it, it justice doesn't have any relevance whatsoever. So we got to understand this is not democracy. And the second point they, they looked at, they looked at um, this report looked at voter suppression. So we we know about Georgia in terms of his voter suppression, in terms of using any and all means to disqualify African people from the right to vote. Now, it seems to me that as a a fundamental tenet of if you're, in fact, a citizen, one of the things that you're guaranteed, quote, unquote, by the Constitution, supposedly, is the right uh, right to vote. The mere fact that states are innovating ways in terms of preventing you from from voting and there is no repercussions from the federal level suggests that people are in cahoots in terms of making sure that African voting rights are denied. But keep in mind, there's no fundamental difference between Republicans and Democrats. They are both policies or platforms that are antithetical or in opposition to the interests of African people. And the third point they looked at, they looked at gerrymandering, gerrymandering uh, voter districts. Now, for people who don't know what gerrymandering is, it means that what happens is that if you got a district where you get a lot of African people, a lot of people of color, uh, what you do is you draw the districts around them. So what happens is that uh, you ensure, by, by drawing the lines around them, you ensure that you create districts which ensure that conservative uh, politicians get reelected to office. So it's very almost impossible to get them to, to, to defeat an incumbent, simply because they draw the, the lines to make sure uh, the defeating incumbents is almost impossible. So uh, the question in terms of democracy, again, uh, it's not about democracy. It's about the maintenance of control. It's about maintenance of power. In that context, African people have no real uh, have, have no no real authority when it comes in terms of how we're treated, uh, why we're treated the way, and uh, the end to this kind of treatment. So as Kwame says, it seems to me that given this reality, given this backdrop, that there's no real democracy in America, then it seems to me that it's coming upon African people to organize people's institutions to truly really self-empower. And it's, it's a critical, because one of the things, when we look in terms of the, 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 the deficit between the have and the have-nots, and we look at government policies, in particular the Federal Reserve policy is specifically aimed to, to, to empower the wealthy at the expense of all others. And clearly we got to say that, you know, just from a, from a sustaining point of view, the African people are essentially locked out. Of course, we got a few billionaires. I think we got about nine in the country who are billionaires. But the problem is that those nine billionaires don't speak for the masses of African people. Uh, even if they did, it's, a, it's of no consequence because unless we have mass organization, we can't we can, we can, uh, achieve uh, those things that we really need in society. And I just don't want to be flipping, but I think it's important we point out when we talk about the perilous situation that African people are confronted with, it's not, it's, it's not hyperbole. It's not an exaggeration to say that the situation is critical. I don't know how much more they're going to do, they've got to do to us to convince us that the situation for us is perilous. There's no question about it. Economically, uh, the situation is perilous. Socially, in terms of the isolation, it's perilous. Uh, you know, uh, when we talk about uh, and, and we talk about employment, and we talk about COVID-19 in terms of the impact it's had on terms of the, the, the destruction of jobs. Keep in mind, no destruction of jobs going to happen any, anyway. But COVID-19 just gave them cover to justify uh, unemployment, uh, higher higher unemployment rate among African people. We, we're, not, we're, in, we're in trouble. We look at the value of homes. You got a situation where the government continues to prop money into the to the economy for the sole purpose of making sure lots of money is available for the wealthy people. To, to make sure that their properties increase in value. 
Well, have anyone else, have anyone out there been looking for a home lately or even an apartment and looking at the kind of costs affiliated with buying a home or even renting an apartment? That is the direct result of government policy. And this notion that it disproportionately impacts African people, I think, is a given. I think most of us understand the, the nature of the hardship. And for, any, for, for anybody who thinks that somehow this hardship is going to end, it's not. It's only going to exacerbate. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. You know, one thing things we've got history as, as an example. When we look in terms of what happened in terms of Nazi Germany, we, we understand what happened to the people there. We've got to understand one thing. Uh, capitalism has no conscience. Uh, capitalism is uh, it's not even amoral. It's lacking morality across the board. And so we got to understand that the destruction of African people in the context of the capitalist system is not a problem. As a matter of fact, capitalism is a good thing. And so we talk about, so when Henry Kissinger talking about the elimination of African people, uh, both on Africa and throughout the world, he's not joking. That's not something he's saying something because of his hatred of, 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 of African people. He's saying that because he sees it as a necessary evil that has to take place in order for white supremacy to survive. So we got some issues confronting us. So the things that Brother Kwame Ture was saying are right. And I certainly hope people listen to it and take it to heart and begin to understand, first and foremost, this is not a democracy. And because it's not a democracy, it comes upon us uh, to organize, to build institutions, to empower ourselves, to be able to defend ourselves against whatever comes down the line. Okay, now we'll go to Brother Anthony and get his take on what lessons can we learn from the 60s based upon Brother Ture's presentation that will apply to the 21st century. Brother Anthony, your take on what lessons, again, we must be well, be conscious of, and apply them. I think in his presentation, he raised five fundamental contradictions of the errors that we continue to make. Can you speak to some of them and elaborate, elaborate a little bit on the necessity on stop repeating these errors if we are to advance as a people? Okay. okay. I kind of like to call like the tail end, end of this presentation. And uh, the thing that struck me was uh, we we continue to try to build coalitions even though we are disorganized. And we continue to make that mistake. And I think that's because a lot of our generation has not done a very good job of passing on the lessons we learned on to our children. And so, uh, you know, so, and, and, and that's an error we continue to make. And, uh, and the thing about it though, we, uh, you know, we tend to try to form coalitions when we, when we ourselves are not sufficiently organized. And uh, you know, and, and, and you know, and the thing about it though, we try to uh, speak for other people a lot of times. And the thing about it though, and the thing about it though, uh, uh, you know, we need to concentrate more on organizing ourselves. Other nationalities are fully, uh, you know, are capable of articulating. What they, what they're fighting for and or against, and uh, and the thing and the thing about it though, uh, they're very uh, you know we're very disorganized and we continue to be because uh, of the educational system 
a lot of us are raised in. The educational system and mass media, I should add. And uh, those factors uh, tend to keep us disorganized. And uh, we have to organize, uh, you know, in order, in order to be in a position to articulate clearly our demands when we try to form coalitions. And uh, and that is a major, uh, that I think that's one of the important lessons from uh, Kwame's uh, speech about lessons about from the sixties. And we would like to go to Brother Moses and get your thoughts on some of the issues that were raised by Brother Kwame as we talk about not repeating the error. So we're gonna bring in Brother Moses. We'd like to get your thoughts, Brother Moses. Mike is yours. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, yeah, think, yeah. Uh, brother, brother Kwame is a great leader and uh, summed up the situation quite well. Uh, um, I'm I'm just concerned about the not just the economical struggle and the theoretical struggle, but I'm concerned about the political struggle, the government, and, uh, and changing the government and having different leadership within the government and... Uh, and ultimately having a whole new governmental system, but it's going to take a process. It's going to take some some clear lines of demarcations in terms of organization and who our friends and who our enemies are and how we're going to discover who our friends and who our enemies are. It's going to be in the political struggle that we sort out these differences. And uh, so I don't know uh, from the standpoint of, of – uh, being on the sideline and just criticizing the situation, uh, I, I, um, that's, that might spark revolution, but that won't carry out revolution to it, to it, through to its end. You got to be involved and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, we need a hands on, hands on people who dare to struggle, who dare to win, who, who dare to say, I am not the pig. I am the people and, and, and take control of, uh, State functions and uh, and uh, continue to organize for that revolution. Thank you. Okay, we can go to our listening audience. We can go to our caller, to our sister um, at seven two three six. See if she would like to respond to some of the lessons that Brother Kwame Ray raised in his presentation. Caller seven two three six. Your response: Lessons from the sixties by Brother Kwame Ray. Uh, I thought that it was very educational and uh, just phenomenal and uh, the, a very good point that uh, we can spark activity and get it going, but we must mobilize on the ground to bring about real change. And I feel that one way to bring about change is to begin be engaged where you are politically and socially. I think they're connected. Um, I, I I think it's important that people run for public office in their communities. I I I think it's important that uh, we work to bring about change. As I said, I think 
with with Brother Kwame, it just made me a little clear on where I feel, how I feel about the vaccine. That my tax dollars went into the discovery of this vaccine, and I'd like my quote representative Congress to negotiate with the folks that received that money to be able to allow pharmaceutical companies in Africa and Asia to produce the vaccine, not because, quote, they're not looking, uh, and so therefore they won't infringe their intellectual rights, but because we all agree that we need to produce this vaccine to save everyone on earth. And I I just thank you for having such an educational show with such wonderful music. It's really a great show. Thank you. Thank you, Carla, for your feedback. And to our panelists, I will highlight, I think, some points of significance that we must reinforce to our people so they can become much more conscious of their behavior and their actions. Brother Anthony, as a continuing inheritor of the life and work of Brother Kwame Ture, in his presentation, he raised a very significant point I think we need to pay closer attention to today. It is around the issue of our people cannot continue to act spontaneously. Our people cannot continue to act out in terms of being mobilized. He talked about the importance of being organized versus mobilized. You talk about the importance of not being spontaneous and reacting instead of being organized, think through things, plan and organize. This will allow you to be permanent in the position to constantly be able to defend and protect what you have created. We have a history where we don't protect those things we have created because many times we have never been organized to protect it. So I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more on the importance and the value of organization versus mobilization and human being, we must not act in spontaneous, being spontaneous, but being conscious on a permanent basis in terms of our actions. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that particularly significant issue and point, Brother Anthony? Sure, I'll try to. Uh, Let's see. Uh, We have to be permanently organized, for one thing. And uh, because our enemy attacks us in many different ways. And we have to be keen on the way in which the enemy comes at us. And that can only be done through permanent or mass organization. And there have been efforts made and whatnot, but they have not been successful mainly because we have not been organized. We have to understand that we cannot take on our enemies by ourselves. Only working together as a collective can we fight against the forces of oppression and protect our interests and and our contributions to humanity which uh, other people, uh, you know, have continued to take credit for. So we have to organize 
because it's, uh, because as uh, as was pointed out earlier, I, uh, you know we're attacked uh, politically, economically, culturally, spiritually, etc. So we so we can only defeat uh, you know the forces of exploitation and imperialism through permanent mass organization. We must, uh, you know, share our experiences with each other and, uh, and, 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 and pass on information, you know, to our youth, especially. And, uh, we, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, um, you know, one of the, uh, emphasis that Kwame emphasized throughout his adult life was belonging to a permanent organization that is working for our people's liberation. And uh, people don't tend not to overlook the fact that he spent a large portion of, portion of his adult, adult life trying to organize the masses of our people. Brother Hackey? I'd like for you to speak on the issue that I think is very critical to our people. When you talk about the differences between an animal and a human being, one of the things as a human being, we have a conscience. As a human being, we don't have to respond, act out of instinct, but we should base our actions off of reasons. That's one of the errors we continue to um, commit is we keep being spontaneity. We keep acting out of um, uh, instincts and not out of reasons. He made a very important point, and I think this is the point I'd like for you, you know, just touch on it from your perspective. If we are to achieve our freedom and liberation, we cannot let outside forces determine where we act and how we act. And I see this going on day after day after day after day, where outside forces are creating stimuli, and we are just reacting to it. Your response to that particular lesson, how do we overcome that? How do we deal with that? Brother Hackey, from your perspective. Well, I think, Brother Africa, you know, uh, a lot of the problem is, you know, is is idealism. And see, idealism comes in when people don't have the necessary information in terms of, you know, what they're confronting with. And because we're idealistic, uh, we tend to embrace that which we're told by media, by the schools, uh, you know, uh, you know, by social media and so forth and so on. And so, therefore, then we, so when we talk about spontaneity, then we understand that spontaneity is a natural outgrowth of the kind of idealism, you know, the kind of idealism that we internalize. And so, as much as we, like earlier, I talked about, as much as we like to believe this is democracy, for those of us who really believe this is democracy, then so when we start talking about the, uh, we talk about, talk about uh, Henry Kissinger's desire or Britain's existing desire to eliminate a large number of African people in the world. For people who are idealistic, they could never they could never understand that. They think that we're just talking. They, they don't understand that this rooted in this rooted in history. It's rooted in uh, a, a, a another kind of science as practiced by the ruling class in society. So this idealism is is, is, is a big enemy. So it's directly accountable, uh, responsible for the kind of spontaneity that we talk about. And of course, you're right. Uh, we do have the, the right to think. Uh, and the whole question of instinct again is is is, is when we act instinctively. You know, again, it's a question in terms of idealism. See, instinctive, we've been instinctive simply means 
you know, that we immediately respond. We don't think through in terms of precisely what's going on. So what we have to do, we have to think as, as human beings, we have to think long-term. We have to think strategically, methodically. We, we have to make, you know, methodically. Uh, we have to think in terms of, you know, uh, where we like to be, let's say, in, 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 in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, or even 100 years down the road. Where do we want to be? But that, none of that can take place by the Africa unless we dispel the kind of idolisms. Unless we have that information, we have desire to want that information, we, 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 it's the kind of spontaneity that, brother, that you're talking about, uh, which has to be a natural inclination. So I think to a large extent, you know, uh, you know uh, to overcome the idealism, that people have to read that which they're not comfortable reading. Uh, the truth is always very difficult. Uh, you know, it's easier to believe things that are fallacious, things that are not true, simply because there's no stress support. Of course, and no stress imposed upon believing that which is not true. Once you have to deal with reality, then knowing how things really work, it's indu- stress-inducing. And nobody wants to be stressed out. So it's easy to say, no, I don't want to hear it. I don't believe it. Everything is fine. But even when the, the material conditions themselves confront our people in terms of the hardships that we are confronted with, a lot of us still don't want to know what it is, what is the reason for these hardships that we have to endure. We, 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 we sum it up to where we're not educated, uh, maybe – or we're lazy, maybe we're just maybe with that. There are all kinds of rationales to justify the, 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 the whole abhorrent treatment that African people receive, you know, on a psychological level. So all of this is, all this speaks to the idealism. And so, so when we start talking about in terms of planning, in terms of actually thinking about these issues, that means that we have to get, we have to get past this whole idealism and, and begin to see things for what they are, not what we want them to be. For instance, you know, and I'm going to close with this, and I know Brother Moses is going to get on, but when we talk about in terms of reality of things, there's a concept, and so for people who don't, who, who think we just, we just espouse the nonsense, there's, there's a concept called real politics. Go back and read what that means. Go, just go back and read, and read what that means. Once you understand that concept, then you understand clearly what we're saying on this program is, is, is not, uh, it's not imaginary. It's not made up. It's not fictitious. It's real. Even though it sounds absurd, it sounds outrageous, it sounds like, oh, it can't be true. Not in America. Not in America. It's very true. And if you go back and take the time to read, read what real politics, what it really means, then you understand clearly the long history in terms of those kind of policies that enacted by the ruling class are done specifically to maintain, maintain power. How do you maintain power in, 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 in a capitalist society? Well, one, you've got to pit people against each other. Particularly when you talk about the history of America in terms of capitalism, you've got to understand that the, 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 the people that are key in terms of maintaining oppression are African people. Why is it important to maintain oppression of African people? Simply because we've been told that somehow Af- that African people are somehow different, that we look different, uh, that, we're, uh, that somehow that we're not real citizens. In fact, the Constitution said we're still three-fifths of a person, and there's nobody on, on, in the federal courts or, 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 or no politicians willing to say that, that portion of the Constitution needs to be removed totally. Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, so you're right. Uh, we, we are human beings, but, you know, simply because we are human beings doesn't mean that we always act like human beings. And often when, you know, when, when they do something to us, we will act instinctively, and, and, and we, don't, we don't think about the long-term consequences. The, the problem is that if we, if, we, if we actually talk about long-term, then no matter what they do, then we got a strategy, we got an ideology in mind in terms of how to move forward. And so no matter what they do, they cannot manipulate us. Right now, as it stands, given the idealism that it permeates the minds of so many of our people, yeah, we're easily manipulated. And that is, the, that, is the, that is the reality of it all, and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Moses, talk to us. Brother Kwame also made a point that, one, 
we'll not forget our history of coming to this particular country. Our history is not the same as other people's history. Our people make advancements through mass participation, through mass participation. The positions that we acquire in society is not because of you as the individual, but because of the sacrifices that our people have made. So therefore, these positions do not belong to you as an individual, but belong to the people. The knowledge that you acquire was collected one, was not an individual one. Talk a little bit, Brother Moses, from your perspective of why these positions that African politicians that people hold, why should these positions be viewed differently and understood as not their position, it's the people position. Your response, Brother Moses, talk to me. Yeah. Well, I think the, well, the highest the, good the is to serve the people, you know, the, the, to serve the people, the, to take the interests of the vast majority of the people, uh, the so-called name man percent, and and uh, do things in their interests. And that's what revolution is all about, uh, trying to bring about a consciousness of uh, a body of cadre, an organized body of cadre who were capable of uh, carrying out uh, the reorganization of society. But in order to carry out the reorganization of society, you're going to have to be organized and 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 know how to organize and uh, and to win the confidence of the people who you want to organize and who you want to lead. You have to win their confidence. And the question is, how is that going to be done? Um, um, uh, is, you know, I'm in, into direct from historical materialism, and when the tide hits the road, we got to get out here and and and, uh, and uh, convince people of the correctness of our position and what needs to be done. And um, you know, people taking up arms and uh, going after the government uh, is is. The bottom line at some point, uh, as I see it, uh, uh, but to get to that process is is, is a, it's a long, hard road, and uh, it means that people have to be convinced that it is that it's the correct thing to do. That the ruling class can no longer rule the same way it used to rule, and that we cannot, or we will not be ruled the same way we used to be ruled. And so, you know. Free education, free health care, you know, a, a, a public fund that takes care of disasters and and uh, emergencies and uh, playing the economy, and uh, this is what we're fighting for. But uh, it's, you know, talking about it is one thing, but implementing it is a whole another thing. And somewhere, somehow, the tide has to hit the road, and we have to be practical, practical people who. Who are taking control of of uh, of our destiny and not leaving it up into the hands of of uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, basically. I mean, and uh, but anyway, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. At this point in time, what we're going to do? You listen to Africa on the Move. Our theme tonight: Your people are talking. This is part one of a two-part series. We'll come back next week, and there will be some discussions on various articles 
such as countries should endorse the right to education. We can talk about education in the concept of has it been in human rights. You know, today they have had over 60 countries rejected the genocidal process and policy of the U.S. blockade against Cuba. We will have some dialogue on that on part two next Sunday, so we want you to definitely come back and tune in, and we'll look at the COVID impact of over 4 billion people being affected in Africa next week, and we'll talk a little bit about the impact of China, how it's driving the global economy, and how we have an impact on this current pandemic. So those will be some articles of continuation of part two. People are talking. We want you to come back next week. Same time, same station. But what we're going to do right now, we're going to rubber share break, and when we come back, we're going to have our final thoughts for tonight. For tonight. You got to listen to Brother Africa on Africa on the Moon. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know. I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. And learn how to care For soon we'll be there While our lives won't be in danger And when the light is clear Oh, how beautiful I will be To know that I've been here And made it through my journey Yeah, and made it my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino. If you think of the Middle East in this Modern time. Say with us, we have some you can't help but so say we'll the be word. Shortly. This is Africa on the move. If you think of the Middle East 
in this modern time. You can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their homes. They live in other countries. Their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer. To give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed we need a new beginning let us plant the seed plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that palestine needs her freedom Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. That's right. The Palestinian people need their freedom like all oppressed people need their freedom. Let's support one another, and we can continue to move forward, Apple and backwards from Apple. Right now, you listen to Africa on the Move, Brother Africa. We're in our closing remarks. We will ask our participants and political panelists and analysts for the day to give us their closing remarks. But first, we want to remind you that you can hear this radio show every Sunday evening from 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Every Sunday evening, come to the station where you will hear us speak truth to power, and we're going to do our best to give you information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. This is the first part of, this, of a two-part series. People are talking, and we want to know what you are talking about next week. As you dial in, 233-679-0841. So right now we can close out our program for tonight by going to our caller. We can go to our sister online, number 7236 see if she has any final thoughts for tonight. 
Caller 7236. Any final thoughts for tonight, my caller? Yes, I thought that it was interesting that Brother Robert talked about picking up arms because apparently, uh, quote, President Donald Trump had folks picking up arms attacking the Capitol on January 6th. So I think that it's been a great show. I think the best way to change the world is to start where you stand. I've I've seen uh, African-American women in my community organize folks, get them to vote, got herself elected, and was able to change, affect some people being able to stay in their homes, making sure the neighborhood was clean. Very basic things we can do to make the world a better place. And once we begin to do that and the folks begin to feel that they're empowered, they'll feel empowered to do greater things and see how they can have a concrete impact on their political, social, and cultural environment. And thank you so much for providing this educational forum and all of you Uh, all of your guests uh, for their insightful, and I tell you, they're a really prepared bunch. All right. Thank you so much, Brother Africa. Okay. Thank you, my sister. We'd like to thank you for your excellent comments and observations and information as well. We thank you for your contribution to today's program. Every day we'll go to our Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Moses. Yeah, it's been an interesting yeah, show. Um, um, I I am a third in, third third internationalist communist, and um, you know the issue of peaceful transition to socialism has been settled in our minds. We're for scientific socialism, um, but anyway, um, I hope that everybody has a good day and uh, gets involved and uh, makes a difference. Thank you. Brother Moses for your contribution to today's program. Now we we'll make our transition to Brother Haki. We're gonna bring in Brother Haki and we can give Brother Haki final thoughts for tonight. Brother Haki, the mic is yours. Well, you know, Brother Africa, let me just engage in some plain speak because uh, the situation is so critical out here, and I just don't get a sense that we really appreciate, you know, just how critical it is out here. So let me try to give a little bit of same speak, a little, you know, uh, down to earth uh, economic speak. Uh, that maybe provide some clarity in terms of highlighting just how perilous our situation is in society. Uh, one of the things we talk about economics, uh, and we talk about disparity between the have and the have nots. Uh, what is interesting, uh, uh, tonight I talked a little bit about in terms of the government's role in terms of facilitating that, that disparity, economic disparity in society. In particular, when we talk about interest rates in terms of, the, 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 see, interest rates are very, very important simply because they, to a large extent, define uh, the cost of living in society. So interest rates also are very important in the sense that they contribute to one's ability uh, um, to, to borrow funds. Now, what happens in the context of society which creates interest rates to keep them artificially low for the sole purpose of making sure that wealthy people have access, have money uh, for investments? Well, in the in process of having access to that money for investment, what you're saying essentially is that rich people who, by virtue of these low interest rates, make tons and tons of money, which means that their wealth increased exponentially because they have access to the money. Uh, even though the interest rates may be low in terms of the, in terms of our ability, in terms of as a poor person to access those loans, interest rates at our level. 
And so when we go to the bank and take, interest, take a loan from a bank, uh, the, the rates are astronomical. But the interest rates for the wealthy people are very, very low. And the reason being, they want to make sure that rich people have access to money to invest, which increases the 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 the, the, the uh, the, the, the uh, difference between the have and the have-nots in society. So in other words, while they get richer and richer and richer, the masses of people, and specifically African people, become poorer and poorer and poorer. So that's that's the real-life implication. So people, I hope, certainly hope that people understand that. When we talk about monetary policy and talking about, you know, having lots lots, lots of money in, in, in circulation, so when we talk about the the, um, uh, the, 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 the Treasury Department, you know, um, selling bonds, to the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve then put on their balance sheet and create credit, uh, which has the same effect in terms of increasing the money supply in the society. All that money, all that money is in, 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 in circulation, what it does is it reduces the value of the dollar. Well, in reducing the value of the dollar, that means that uh, you can't buy much with the dollar. And specifically, when you talk, talk about investments in terms, of, in terms of the dollar, who's going to invest in the dollar when you can invest in the Russian ruble or, or the uh, Chinese yuan? And uh, make a better, make, make more profit, simply because the value of the currency is much stronger. So again, what does that mean in terms of the impact of the the, 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 uh, the American society? It means the American economy declines. Well, here's the, here's the kicker: if the American economy is going to decline, who do you think they're going to blame? Who's going to be blamed for that? So I probably hope people understand what I'm saying to them. Who's going to be blamed for that? In the history of America, anybody who says is anybody other than African people, I would I would challenge I would challenge them to a fight. Because the bottom line is that when we talk about in terms of historically, the people who have been set up to be the scapegoats for all of us have always been African people. Why do you think the system declines? Why do you think when it declines, they're not going to blame African people? Of course they're going to blame African people. They're not going to blame themselves. The capitalist class is not going to say, you know what? All of these economic woes, we were self-inflicted. We did that. It wasn't African people. They're not going to say that. They're going to point their finger at the African people. You know what's going to happen? These ill-informed, poor folks, uh, uh, white folks specifically, are going to come at your ass. They're going to come after you. So no matter how, no matter how suited you are in terms of, you know, you know you, you're performing your various activities in the community, the bottom line is that when they come at you, they come at you. And none of that stuff is going to help you. The only thing that's going to help you is being organized, to be in a position to, to defend yourself. And so when Brother Moses talked about, uh, talking about the, the, the implication of, uh, uh, implementation of, of weaponry, uh, that is the history of human beings. It's unavoidable. It's not that anybody's looking for a fight. The reality is that they're going to bring the fight to you. Whether or not you respond is on, is on our people. If our people don't respond, if we get wiped out, they could commit genocide against us. You know what? History going recorded as, well, it was their fault because they sat there and hit all the, con- the tangible conditions that say that either things are falling, the country is falling apart, the economy is in decline, History of racism, they're coming at you. Why didn't these African people know that they were coming at them? So, they're, so they're, the genocide against them was that African people's own fault because they failed to prepare themselves for the inevitable. I certainly hope people understand. One last thing, Brother Africa, social policy. Now, we talk about that. When you think about a system that fundamentally uh, 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 has a formula to, to, to fund education based upon a housing value, so in rural areas, I mean not rural areas, but in suburban areas, the houses are expensive. Uh, uh, you know, um, so they have uh, larger reserves, large, larger revenues in terms of funding schools. Kids uh, get the best education. Well, in city schools, based upon housing housing formulas, 
people in city schools, the housing should not be uh, valued as highly. And so as a consequence, they have no revenues, no reserves to put into that school, so our kids get the worst education, lack of books, uh, no, no latest technology, none of that. So, and then despite this background, then they expect you to compete. They know damn well you can't compete. That's the whole ball game. So what do we do? Knowing that reality, why are we not in terms of trying to build independent schools? Why are we not? Why are we living the very minimal, making sure that after school that uh, we, we create a situation where our kids can go to to get instruction in math, educa- math, uh, computers, and, and above all, and definitely have to learn African history. Our children must, we must destroy this, this notion that intelligence is based upon skin color. See, the media's in a very good job trying to indoctrinate our kids. So the time our kids are 12 years of age, they're pretty much absorbed all this nonsense about white is, is right and white is intelligent and white is this and white is that. Uh, that it, 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 it negates their ability in terms of being the best human being or the, or the best they can be academically, whether it be male or female. So clearly, you know, and, and the last thing about Africa, when we talk about the level of stress inflicted upon African people, I mean, stress actually impacts on the way the mind works. African people, poor people generally, are inflicted with a lot of stress. The question is, then, how do we create a situation, condition society where we make that stress to protect our children to make sure they perform academic, or academically? What do we do? There are things that we can do. There's certainly we can use the churches in terms of, in that regard, in terms of protecting them, the emotional stability of our children, and therefore protect the intellectual capabilities of our children. But it takes organization. It takes awareness. It takes understanding. These things are happening. This is not, this is not imaginary. This is not hyperbole. This is not something that we're simply saying because it sounds good or it titillates. We're not interested in any of that stuff. We're telling you the reality, and we know in telling you the reality, we understand the kind of threats that we face by virtue. Come on this radio program and talking about the reality. I could tell you some things, but I'm not going to do that. So we understand damn well what we're up against when we talk about what's going on, and we tell you, we keep it real, and we tell you absolutely correctly. And the people who monitor these programs know that what we're saying is absolutely correct and real. It's up to our people to understand the reality of what's going on in the society and move the key organizations, institutions to protect us, to make it possible for our longevity in society. If we don't, if we end up in genocide being performed, about genocide being uh, perpetrated against us, then we got nobody to blame but ourselves. We've been warned. Now, close to that, Brother Africa. As always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix, and uh, you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Hackty, for your contributions to today's program. As we often um, state to our audience, we're in the seat. We'll take the heat. As we define it, we're staying behind it. We're going to speak truth to power in no other way. So we're going to keep moving forward, and we're going to do that right now by allowing that Brother Anthony to come forward and give us his final thoughts for the night. Brother Anthony, the mic is yours. Thanks, Thanks. for having me, for Brother, having Africa. Brother Africa. And, and uh, revolutionary greetings uh, to, uh, to the fellow panelists and the listening audience and our special guest today. Uh, we need, and uh, and and I think uh, this is the most uh, important lesson that Kwame left us with, is that we need to be organized, and that's what he fought for even uh, up into the last breath. He fought for uh, for us to be organized to liberate Africa. Because that is uh, the liberation of Africa is the ultimate solution to the problems that are facing African people worldwide. 
And uh, you can learn more about, uh, you know, the work uh, my uh, uh, organization is doing, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. Uh, to learn about the history of our objective, Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, and uh, and the history and development of our political party, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Please check it out. And, uh, and also, uh, remember that if you don't uh, that if you don't find an organization uh out here that that you feel needs the, the needs of our people form your own organization but our people must be organized thanks thanks thank you brother Anthony. the call is let's get organized Organization is the weapon of the oppressed. So, our brothers and sisters into the oppressed community, if you want to be free, you better get organized. No unorganized force can be the organized force. So, let's get organized. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. Just get up and do it. Let's get organized. We need to be organized. You know, only if you are organized, then you will have the capability, the means, and the capacity to truly think freely, I mean, think clearly. Human beings cannot think clearly when they are disorganized. Did y'all know that? You can't think clearly. So which means it's, in, it's imperative if you can function as a conscious human being, you must function in an organized manner. So as Brother Anthony alluded to, Brother Haki also talk about if you don't join the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, D.C., the African Women's Association, the NAACP, the Nation of Islam, the Pan-African Congress of Zambia, if you're going to join an organization that's fighting for the liberation of your people, then you have the responsibility to create one or join one. No, the only two choices you have. You can't sit on the sideline and do nothing. That means you are chosen the side of the enemy, and you are acting as the enemy. So, brothers and sisters, let's do the right thing and join the organization. Let's do the right thing and email Africa on the move to a Gmail and join our support committee. Have support the station. We want to do some things, but we can't do without the support. So, you're interested in supporting us and joining us? Email us and let us know, and we can tell you how you can do that. So until next time, remember, we'll be back next Sunday, every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. We're going to speak truth to power, but more importantly is we're going to give you information so you can think. Until next time, we'll subscribe to go forward with back with level from Brother Africa to you. We're going to leave you with some revolutionary culture music. So until next time, Africa is on the move. We thank you for allowing us to come to your home this evening. Spread the word. Passport Red. Malcolm on Twitter featuring Napoleon the Legend. Rock the Bell Radio.
conspiracy theorists. What if Martin had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man? I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did it's way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seem like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler, trying to fear people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree, and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence, or forever be our own downfall. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale, and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence, but don't let it steal our faith. Hide behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Cause if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter. Be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause if Mon had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter. It be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you're looking for be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in. 1940 or something, I swear And all I have is love and joy to give I need to spread my wings I need to fly away I want to get high today Who got five on my little bundle of temporary Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already In a march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose Two different tribes and we fighting the same person Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us Cosmic companionship sustained me After my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today, I must have bumped my head, and landed in 1940 or something, I swear, and all I have is love and joy to give, I need to spread my wings, I need to fly away.
bragging. It's one of two suckers, ignorant brothers, trying to rob and steal from one another. You get caught in the mid. So to crush that stereotype, here's what we did. We got ourselves together so that you could unite and fight for what's right. Not negative cause. The way we live is positive. We don't kill our relatives. Pop, 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 when it's shot, who's the blame? Headline, front page, and rap, the name. MC is right here to state the bottom line. The black on black crime was way before time. Took a brother's life with a knife at his wife. Cried because he died of trifling death when he left. His very last breath was I slept to watch his step. Back in the 60s, our brothers and sisters were hanged. How could you gangbang? I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan, and I shouldn't have to run from a black man. Because that. Fight and bust it. 
the door so there'll be no bum rushing. Let's get together before we're falling apart. I heard a brother shot another, it broke my heart. I don't understand the difficulty, people. Love your brother, treat him as an equal. They call us animals, Mm-mm, I don't agree with them. I'll prove them wrong, but right is what you're proving them. Take key before I leave for what I'm saying, or we'll all be on our knees. Is served on a platter, making a day, not failing to anticipate. They got greedy, so they fell for the bait. That makes them a victim. Picked and plucked new jack and jails, but this is the best they ever duck. There's no one around, cause in jail you're a number. They never took the time to wonder about Yes, we urge to merge. We live for the love of our people, the hope they get along. Point to our brothers and sisters who don't know the time. Boys, don't be it's set in your head, you know our job to build and collect ourselves with intellect. To revolve, to evolve the self-respect. Cause we, we got, got to, to keep, keep ourselves in check. Or else it's Thank you. 
L'amour, la volonté et le sacrifice pour le changement du Congo. Congo Love pour un Congo nouveau. Madame Patricia Lokwa, servant. Banaya Congo Tolingana, Sangana. Africa,
the Indians who welcome the pilgrims and to the buffalo who once ruled the plains like the vultures circling beneath the dark clouds looking for the rain looking for the rain just like the city that stagger on the coastline in a nation that just can't stand much more like the forest buried beneath the highway never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter Winter in America
With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.